Okay, we're going to start uh, this morning with this, uh, what is going to be amazing. We're going to take a journey now uh, in the book of Revelation into this bizarre world that John presents to us. And I'm not going to make any excuses for John. It is very uh, bizarre. And uh, it can become very confusing unless you have an expert to guide you. Through those, <laughs> through those troubled waters. And that expert is here, right on this table. These experts. And I put these out here not to impress you, although you should uh, definitely be impressed. Because um, I've read almost all of those this summer when I was on my break. And, and i got to tell you, uh, it is remarkable what the book of Revelation contains. It it is just beyond. And we've spent the last few weeks talking about these seven letters that John wrote to these churches and, and what the letters contained and what the churches were facing. And now John is taken up into heaven. And there he starts seeing these visions. And, and I mean, it's just really amazing what he sees. And as I've told you each week, what I want you to do is not turn in your Bibles. The text is printed in your bulletin. But I'm asking you not to look at your text, not to look at the Bible, not to look at your bulletin. But just listen. If you need to, close your eyes. But listen and see what you see. Let your imagination go and see what you see. And then when we go into the exposition you will be looking at each verse with me. But now we're going to start reading this vision. And remember, there's no chapter breaks. The book is all one big long letter, one big long discourse. So I'm not going to announce chapter 4, chapter 5, none of that. This is, there was none of that. There, were no, there was no versification, no numbers, no nothing. It was just running scroll. In fact, there was no punctuation. Greek has no punctuation. And so these sentences all ran together. Now, I'll do a better job than they did with that in English. But just listen and hear the Word of God. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must soon take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on the throne 24 thrones, and seated on the throne, 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea like glass, clear as crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes 
in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who was seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before Him, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. Then I saw In the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. For no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And before the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, And with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of angels, 
numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of and thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of God. Wow. And I'm going to ask you the question, crazy. What do you see? What do you see? The number of things that you see is unbelievable. It is sensory Overload. There are no less than five doxologies of praise. There are shouts and chants and songs. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's blazing torches. There's creatures, living creatures, angels. It's overwhelming. The other day I went, I've been trying to go a couple times a week to UTEP library and spend time studying because it's quiet and it's cool and I can find a little cubby hole over there and I can study and really focus on all this. And so I put in my earphones and I listened the other day to one of my favorite symphonies, Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto in D. Some of you may be familiar with it. And I didn't listen to just any Tchaikovsky symphony. I listened to it played by Itzhak Perlman. You know who Itzhak Perlman is? And I listened to it when Itzhak Perlman was in his prime. He was young. And he played with the Philadelphia Orchestra, Eugene Ormandy conducting. And I have to tell you, it, that is transcendent. I've listened to it a hundred times, but again, it was just transcendent. And you know, you can get the score, and I don't read music, but the scores are here. I mean, here they are. And you can look at every single note, and each note is really something really unique, but it's not anything until what? Until you put them all together. And that's what the book of Revelation is like. It is a symphony. It is a work of art. And if you go in and you try to pick every single detail apart, you miss the message. You miss the symphony. You miss the glory. So rather than take it all apart, I'm just going to run through and help you. What do you see? What is John trying to convey through the power of the Holy Spirit? What is he saying to us that he wants you to absorb and experience and see. First, you see a throne. And by the way, I organized these. Guess how many I organized them into? You get extra credit if you know the number. 14. Don't you like that, 14? Now, there's a lot more than that, but I just arranged it this way so that you could see how spiritual I am at getting... (laughs) 
the numbers to line up. <laughs> okay, never mind. First, you see a throne. You see this throne in heaven, and then secondly, you see someone on the throne. But John doesn't describe what he looks like. He just gives you a description of an appearance because you can't describe God. He is a spirit. You can't describe Him. But John describes what he sees, and it's jasper. It's this brilliant, revulgent, white light, so bright, so clear, so crystal that you can hardly look at it. And he sees carnelian. Carnelian is a gem that's like a ruby, blazing fire red. And then he sees a rainbow. And this rainbow, it's so crazy. You can't even imagine. What does it mean it goes around the throne? You can't depict it. It's so enormous. The, the vision, but it's a rainbow, but it's not a ra- multicolored rainbow, it's green, it's blazing green, vibrant, verdant, like life. We know what that's like, I mean, when it rains, it's been raining the past few days, you peek outside, what do you see, El Paso people? You see something green for once, you go, wow, there is actually green there, instead of brown everywhere. Not that there's anything wrong. I love the desert, but wow, green. Green, green, green. How cool is that? Won't last. (laughs) Then you see a court. A court of 24 thrones and 24 elders wearing white and having gold crowns. And scholars have said that, well, it's, it's 12 representatives from the Old Testament and 12 representatives from the New Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound good? But it's not possible because John would not have thought, oh, I need to include 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament. He didn't know what an Old Testament was. He knew what an Old Testament was. He didn't know what a New Testament was. That came later. What would John have been thinking about? John would have thought, you know, every king has a court. And those courts are there because the king is great. Great kings have great courts. And the court, in the scheme of the kingdom of Israel, David the king designed the liturgy for the worship of God in Israel. And you can read about it in First, uh, First Chronicles. He designed that entire worship. Their worship was kind of loosey-goosey. He created a very de- designated way of worship. And that worship included 24 Aaronic priests in ranks. And what those priests did was they orchestrated all of the hundreds, and they had hundreds of singers, men and women, playing instruments and vocalists and antiphonies and beautiful music that we cannot even comprehend. And probably wouldn't like because it would have been Middle Eastern music, not Western European. Wouldn't have sounded like Bach. And they would have been angelic beings, not human beings. And we know this because later in chapter 5 he says these, these elders speak and they say, you, they're talking to God, you have ransomed people 
and you have made them. Not us, not we. Soul scholars have surmised that they were angelic beings, 24, who are there to orchestrate the worship of God and the great king. And then there's power. Look at verse 5a, the first part. It says there are flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. What does that remind you of? Everybody that read this would have been reminded of Mount Sinai or of other great stories where the gods, whatever the gods are, and in this case it was the God of Israel, where He comes and shows up and attending Him is such majestic, overwhelming power that the creation itself cannot bear the weight of His presence and so it begins to spark and flutter and vibrate and so you have clouds and clashes of thunder and lightning and rumblings because the creation cannot handle God when He steps into it. It has to give way. And the way it gave way was through these, these natural phenomenons that were, that were terrifying, earthquakes and stuff. And look at verse 5b, the second part. There's not only a power, but a presence. And that's what is meant by these seven blazing torches and seven spirits of God. Now, a lot, you know, you think, well, I didn't know. Seven spirits, what's that? I mean, is it, what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits. And there's references, by the way, John references the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Guess how many times in this little discourse? How many? <laughs> Somebody said seven. Multiply that times two. Fourteen times. See how cool that is? See, I am really in a good place when I say there's fourteen. Fourteen times he references Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, which was an appearance of theophany to Daniel, if you remember. And he references Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. Scholars don't even know how many times. More than that. And then he references Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's theophany and appearance when he sees God sitting on his throne and his train filled the temple. John is reaching back into this rich fabric of the Old Testament and think about what he's doing. Presence of God, Holy Spirit, seven blazing torches, rumbling, thundering, somebody sitting on the throne and he looks like Jasper and Carnelian. All of these images and a rainbow. The rainbow was in the other visions too. All of that because what is he doing? He's taking all that rich fabric. Imagine folks, grabbing all of it, sweeping it all up, every thread. And he's bringing those threads in and he's saying... I'm going to connect them right now. Is that cool or what? And then in front of the throne, there's this sea of glass. How many times have I told you that the sea, the oceans, 
in the Bible were tohu v'bohu. They were the chaos, the formless, and the void. And in creation, the Holy Spirit hovers over tohu v'bohu, over the formless and the void. And He brings peace and shape and calm to the chaos. And creation, He begins to form and shape the days and the, and the nights and the plants, and the animals, and the people, and the land, and the sea. And in ancient Near East thinking, the sea was the abode of demons. That's where the devils lived. It was always turbulent. It was always chaotic. It was never still. And here you have a sea of glass, not even a ripple. And clear, clear, transparent, like crystal. And then there's an intersection. So we've seen a chord, a power, a present, a peace. Now you see an intersection. This is so interesting. There's four living creatures and they have six wings and they're full of eyes. But the, and again, these are all allusions back to Old Testament Scriptures in Ezekiel and in, uh, in Daniel chapter 7 and in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. These four living creatures are full of eyes. They have six wings and they're full of eyes inside and outside. You can't even imagine it, but he just says it. He, he's, he says it and he doesn't mean for you to, he doesn't mean to take a photograph or a video or anything. He just says it and he leaves it there. This is so amazing. You can't even imagine what it looks like, but I'm going to tell you anyway. One is looking like a lion, one is an ox, one has the face of a man, one has an eagle in flight, and they never cease to sing, holy, 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 they're constantly singing this song. In every archaeological dig that they have done from back to the pharaohs, the pharaohs are seated on their throne, and guess what is around their throne? Take a wild guess. Living creatures, seraphim. This is nothing new. Even in Rome, the Caesars were seated and, and over them was their great symbol of the Roman Empire was what? An eagle. This, was, this would have resonated with those people. They wouldn't have tried to figure it out and they certainly wouldn't have said that, that they were UFOs. They would have said, wow, this king has four living creatures. And the intersection is that these creatures are creatures of the earth. They're creatures that are made. And they're made to intersect with the earth. They are guardians of God's holiness against anything impure. And they represent the four, the four corners. In fact, it even says four corners. They represent the four corners. These were earthly things. Compass. The four directions of the compass. The four corners of a room. The four corners of the earth. The four winds. These were all things that would have resonated in the minds of these people. And these creatures initiate in the next chapter, when we get into the next chapter, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to come out. And who sends them out into the world? These four creatures. So there's an intersection between heaven and earth. 
Then there's worship in 9 through 11. The creatures call out, the elders fall down. And then in 5.11, there's a scroll. And this scroll is written, this is unusual, written inside and outside. This, every scholar has said they never did that. All scrolls had writing inside, and then they were sealed with the seals. They didn't have writing on the outside, but this scroll is unique because it is full. It is so full, it has to be written inside and out. And inside that scroll is all that God has ever done that you and I ever know anything about concerning two things. Judgment and redemption. Two things are contained in the scroll. Everything God has ever said or done or will do about judgment and redemption. Because when Jesus starts breaking those seals, all kinds of things break loose on the earth. And we'll look at those in the next day. The first four things that happen are those horses that come into the earth. And then you see weeping despair because no one is worthy. That's in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 5. He says there's no one worthy. No one can take the scroll. And he makes a point. He says above the earth, under the earth, all over the place, nowhere was found. And then in this dramatic scene, Hollywood could never picture this, by the way. In a dramatic scene, all of a sudden, someone steps up. John is weeping, and the text doesn't say he was just kind of dripping a few tears. He was sobbing bitterly. It affected him so much that no one could open and take the seals and set loose God's judgment and redemption. No one. But then there's an end of weeping. Look at 5 and 6 of chapter 5. The voice says, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Desi, the root of David. And I saw a lamb. The voice says, behold the lion. But when John turns and looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. But not just any lamb. He sees a lamb that is standing up as if it had been slain. Now you cannot picture that other than just to get a vague apprehension of what that might be. And Dr. Vern Poitras, this book right here, Dr. Poitras says that this, this sentence, this sentence, A lion who appears like a lamb slain before the foundation of the world is the single paradox of all Christianity. That's quite a statement. In that one statement is everything. A lamb, a lion, slain. Take it in, my dear friends. Take it in. Soak it in. And he takes the scroll and then there's a new song of worship. Remember there was a song of worship before. Now 
It's a new song. His taking. Think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ, the son of David, steps up and takes the scroll and just taking the scroll prompts a new song. And what is the content of that new song? Every song about Him. Every song you know about Jesus Christ. From Amazing Grace to these beautiful new hymns we sang this morning, every one of them is about Him. And they're all brand new. And then you see a people. Verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll for you were slain and by, listen, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then finally you see a new creation. Think of the track we've just been on, folks, from beginning to end. From creation to new creation. And I can talk more about it in the Q&A after church, but look at verses 11 through 14, this last section. Then I heard many angels, myriads of myriads, there's no way to count them, there's thousands upon thousands, scholars have tried to figure it out, it's tens of millions, it's beyond what you can count, it's just lots, lots, worthy as the Lamb. And then, if that wasn't enough, you've got elders, you've got creatures, you've got angels, you've got people, all singing, worthy, worthy, worthy as the Lamb. You've got this whole cacophony. And then you add to it this, and I heard every creature in heaven above and on the earth beneath and under the earth and in the sea. Everything that you know that exists here and up there as far as the Hubble can look to whatever you can see, whatever you can know, everything is crying out in praise and worship. So that's what you see and more. I could only barely describe it. Why are you seeing it? Remember, that's our outline, folks. What do you see? And we just talked about it. Why? Why are you seeing it? Well, more importantly, why were the seven churches in Asia seeing it? And it's because of this. They were under assault. And let me tell you, folks, that assault has never stopped. It's still going on today. And it's going on today through violent means in some parts of the world and in other places like the United States where we live. It's seduction. It's lies. It's people trying to seduce us away from the truth. It's false doctrine, false teachers, false religion, false things. Some of them even look good. But they can take us away from the supremacy of this great God we have. And Jesus is saying... 
I know. Remember, in all those letters, he said, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know because I've been there. I came down. I lived in a cradle. I lived in a village. I had a questionable birth. Uh, they knew who my father, they didn't know who my father was. They knew who my mother was. They knew she was married out of, they knew she got pregnant out of wedlock. They knew. I know what it is. I know what it is to be poor. I know what it is to have no food. I know what it is to have calluses. I know what it is to be rejected. I know what it is to have shame. I know what it is to have every piece of my clothing taken from me and standing naked before the whole world with a sign that doesn't even have my name on it, but mocks me instead. I know. And he's saying, you need to know that this exists, that this is transcendent, that there's more to life than just what you see and just what you experience. There's more to life than a marriage that's on the rock. There's more to life than cancer. There's more to life than dementia. There's more to life than an empty checkbook. There's more to life There's more. And if you don't have that, life becomes meaningless. Not only do I love Tchaikovsky's symphony, I also love Shakespeare. I've been reading Shakespeare since I was a teenager. Don't ask me why. But some of you know in Macbeth, Macbeth and his wife murder King Duncan and, and Macbeth... Is, becomes more and more violent and his wife becomes more and more crazy. And news finally comes to Macbeth that his partner in crime, his evil wife, has died. And one of the most famous soliloquies in all of, of English literature, listen, she would have died anyway. That news was bound to come someday. This is Macbeth, the husband finding out his wife is dead. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow the days creep slowly along until the end of time. And every day that's already happened has taken fools that much closer to their deaths. Out. Out. Brief candle. He's talking about life. Out, out, brief candle. Life, listen to this. Life is nothing more than illusion. It's like a poor actor who struts and worries for his hour on the stage and then is never heard from again. Life is a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. If that's not the 21st century American, I don't know what is. The 21st secular American is desperate to squeeze and milk meaning out of everything. But what does it come to at the end of the day when the grave gapes open and in they go? Vanity. Meaninglessness. 
nothing. Cynicism, pessimism, life means nothing. And over against this comes this voice, this little voice. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will not die. If Jesus really said that, and if this chapter 4 and 5 are real, then every moment of your life matters. Everything you do and say matters. Every beautiful note these symphony folks here played for us this morning, every stroke of Dave's brush, every word, every moment you send serving your church, everything you do matters. And your suffering matters. And God is taking every tear that you cry and you weep in your sorrow and He's putting it, it says in Psalms, He's catching them in His bottle. That's why you're seeing it. And who do you see? Who do you see? Well, you know what I'm going to say. You see a lamb. But let me ask you this final question, folks. Why do you get to see Him at all? Why? And I'd like to suggest that something that we probably, unless you're just really with it, and I kind of think we're all not really with it because I wasn't with it. I had to, had to kind of drop out of sky on me. Why are we seeing the Lamb at all? And it's because of verse 1. Look at it. Verse 1, chapter 4, first verse. And I saw a door standing open in heaven, and I heard a voice, and the voice said, Come up here. And it says explicitly whose voice that was. Who does it say it was? It was who he heard in chapter 1, verse 10. I heard his voice. I heard Jesus say, come up here. I've opened the door for you. Remember Laodicea? The door was closed. John connects chapter 3 with chapter 4. And he says, the door's closed over here. But it's open over here. And the reason that you get to go through that door, the reason you get called up into that place, the reason you can see it at all, is because he he opened that door and the only way that door got open was because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God and you have made them a kingdom of priests and they shall reign with you forever. He did that. His blood opened the door. His blood made the invitation real. Come up here. Dr. John Stott, who passed away a few years ago, one of the 
one of the greatest things I've ever read in my life. And I'm trying to roll out all my good stuff for you folks. And this is, the, well, this is one of the best. I hope you listen. John Stott, at the end of his book, The Cross of Christ, he says this, listen. I could never myself believe in God. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed saying God on a cross. In the real world of pain, how could anyone worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, a ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on a cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken loneliness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings, our sufferings become more manageable because of his. There is still a question mark over against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross, which symbolizes God's divine suffering for you, for me. Will you trust him? I pray you will. Holy God and Father, we will never know in our wildest imagination the glory that is up there just a moment away from us. At death, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we are in your presence. Every human being will stand before you someday. Every human being Who will be with us in that standing? Will we stand alone by ourselves with our paltry works and efforts 
to commend us or will we stand with the Lamb of God who is worthy and has ransomed us by His blood? Oh, Father, help us. Help us to purge our souls from anything other than Jesus Christ the King and to call upon Him who is worthy. Help us. Save us. And have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.